0: Children's service downstairs at this time. I'd like to invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. And I want to pick up the narrative this morning with verse 42. Um, From the time that Jesus... Comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and comes into the crowd that has gathered, and the, the focal point of the issue is this uh, young man who is demonized and uh, has these epileptic seizures. Also, he is uh, mute and uh, deaf, and the other Gospels uh, indicate that to us. Jesus affects his healing, then following that, there are a series of um, short uh, kind of uh, episodes that Luke reports that begin to bring out some aspects of human nature that are not very flattering. And uh, as we look at these, um, the challenge for us always is to be willing to ask God if any of these apply to us. Do I see myself in any of these uh, particular pictures that are painted for us? And so I'd like to kind of go through them uh, in sequence as they're presented and then talk about each one as we move along. Uh, to gain the context, uh, look at verse 42 while he was still approaching, that is the man and uh, his son who was demonized, the demon slammed into the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this statement. You know, popularity is an interesting thing, and the way that we respond to it is also interesting. In this particular passage, in this event, uh, as Jesus has worked uh, an incredible miracle, I mean, undoubtedly the people in that region knew of this young man. This is a this is an event that occurred uh, over and again. Uh, we learned that he had sometimes been cast into the fire, and other times even you know, thrown into the water to drown him, that, that this demon was really trying to destroy this young man. And the people were aware of it because uh, he's in their neighborhood and he's not able to hear, he's not able to speak. And he has these, these fits, these seizures that uh, just overtake him. And in a word, Jesus completely heals him. And cast the demon out, you know, and the crowds are just wild. They're ecstatic. I mean, this is incredible. They've never seen anything like this. This guy, Jesus, is a great guy to have around. Um, and they're, and they're praising him and they're glorifying God and they're all excited about how wonderful this is. And in the midst of that, You know, a lot of people would take that kind of thing and say, you know, wow, I've really made an impact here. Jesus takes his disciples, you know, kind of off to the side and he says, listen to me. Don't be deceived about what you're hearing because the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men not long from now. And what he meant was he was going to be crucified. He had already given indication of that when Peter gave his great confession and Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And uh, and then he begins to tell them that he is going to be going to Jerusalem and they're going to, to take him and they're going to crucify him. And, Peter says, no way is this ever happening to you. I'm not going to let it happen to you. And Jesus, in a strong rebuke, says, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have God's view in mind. You're just thinking about what you want. And uh, I refuse to be distracted by you. And so here it is again. It comes up. And what Jesus is saying is, you see these people that are so happy with me right now they're going to be the ones yelling crucify him not very long from now and undoubtedly some in that very crowd would have been there because Jesus was crucified at the time of Passover and everyone that could went to Jerusalem for Passover and all these people would have been going to Jerusalem if they were at all able and so, uh, Jesus is saying, you know, don't um, don't get all caught up in their excitement, because crowds are fickle. They kind of go whichever way the wind is blowing. And, you know, we read in his triumphal entry that he comes in uh, riding on the colt of a donkey, and they are throwing their coats down for him, and throwing palm branches down and waving palm branches and hailing him you know as their king and their and their master their savior they're so excited and less than a week later some of the same crowd is saying we want barabbas and crucify this man we're not interested in him and so Jesus is trying to awaken his disciples to the nature of of the crowds. He says an interesting thing here, or Luke says an interesting thing by way of interpretation. He says, they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, I want to kind of go on a rabbit trail for a moment, because this is not germane to the flow of the narrative necessarily but this is an interesting point and and I would be willing to venture that you and I have found ourselves in this same kind of situation you ever been in a place where you've you're up against it you've got a relationship that's in trouble or you've got uh, a financial crisis or you've got a health crisis or some other thing is going on in your life and you're asking God for insight and understanding and wisdom, and what you're hearing doesn't seem to match up. It just doesn't seem to fit, you know. And, and you keep praying, and you kind of keep hanging in limbo. And your, you know, your question is, um, okay, God, where are you? You know, I'm not getting the answers I'm looking for, and. Curiously, we are told here that Jesus gives his disciples information that they cannot use because they don't understand it. And I ask myself, why would Jesus do that? And what was their problem with understanding it? In fact, it was actually concealed from them. And who would be doing the concealing except God Himself, hiding the the depth of the meaning of this statement? Don't you find that a bit perplexing? I do. You know, so I was kind of mulling that over and saying, Lord, I I need some help here. Commentary commentaries aren't any help here, you know. I need some some Holy Spirit help here. I need some interpretation. And I don't pretend to have a corner on the interpretation here, but but here's the thing that came to me as I thought about this. Sometimes we're not ready to receive the answer we seek. Sometimes if we got the whole picture it might actually change the way we are responding and alter our course in a a negative fashion. Think about it for just a moment. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to go to a cross. And these are His disciples who are following Him. Where are they going? If they're going with him to Jerusalem, you know, if I were them, I would think there's a good chance I could end up on a cross. And I didn't sign up for this, you know. I signed up to get a kingdom. I signed up with Messiah. I mean, we're going to to be triumphant. We're going to overthrow Rome. We're going to win this thing. And he's going to a cross and I'm not into that maybe they would have changed course maybe some of them would have stopped at that point and it was important for them to follow him all the way God was going to take care of them he was going to protect them none of them were lost except Judas uh, because of his betrayal but God had a way to take care of the disciples but they didn't understand all of that and so I think that God in part was hiding the truth from them so that they would stay the course with Jesus. Just my opinion. And then I have to ask myself, okay, so why say this at all? Why give this information? If it's not going to do them any good, why tell them? But it did do good. Later. In retrospect. As he comes out of the grave triumphant and they uh, are in that period of time where Jesus has been crucified and resurrected and they're wondering what is next. It is important for the disciples and frankly it's important for us to realize that Jesus was not a victim of circumstances that it was not an accidental twist of fate that He got crucified, that that was His purpose. That He had planned to seek and save that which was lost, and the cross was a necessary destiny in order to effect our redemption. It was planned from the foundation of the world. And they do remember it, note, because it's here. They remember all of these occasions when Jesus said, I'm going to a cross, I'm going to a cross, I'm going to a cross. And they're like, what are you talking about? And they just kind of put that out of mind. But afterward, they put it all together and they said, oh, he's going to a cross. He meant it. And it was not an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a twist of fate. That was his intent all along. No one could put Jesus on a cross unless He was willing to go there. And so, the information is given, prophetically. They don't get the full picture because they need to stay the course. But in the future, they understand. And friends, you and I face those same kinds of things at times, where we're perplexed and we're saying, God, I need insight. I need help. I need you to to give me some direction. I'm not sure what to do here, and it's like I'm not getting any clear answers. I read my Bible and I just this verse jumps out of me, but it doesn't really seem to fit, and I don't know what's going on. But God is at work, orchestrating the course of events. And bringing you to a place where your trial makes sense, typically in retrospect. We seldom see it in the midst, but we often, if if we're open to God, we see it in retrospect. And then we realize, ah, that's how that fits. That's what God was saying. That's what he meant. I don't know if that helps you, but but it helps me. It helps me to realize that the ways of God um, in dealing with me sometimes are cloaked in mystery. But they do have a goal. and, And they're always right. And if I continue to walk by faith, he will make sense out of them to me. So... After this whole event with with the uh, demonized boy and the uh, behavior of the crowds, Jesus and his disciples head toward Capernaum. Capernaum is, uh, they've been up in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is north and east of the northern shore of the Galilee, and now they're headed um, back to Capernaum, which is closer to being on the shore. It's kind of a fishing town, and they're moving back down there. And um, have you ever been on a group hike? How many of you have been on a group hike? Okay, you know what happens on a group hike? You, you don't stay all together in a, little, in a little knot. You know, you can't, you can't walk uh, 13 abreast on a, in a group hike. It's just there aren't any trails like that. Typically, uh, you kind of get strung out along the way, and you may have somebody you're walking beside. But the, the people in the front of the group, Really can't hear the conversations going on the back. I mean, you could be 100, 150 feet behind them. The people in the back don't know what's going on up front. They're having these, these side conversations. And this is kind of the, the, the picture of Jesus traveling with his disciples. And there was often more than 12 uh, with them anyway. And so they're walking along. And um, they're going to this uh, house in Capernaum. And the disciples are having a discussion Very strange discussion. They're talking about they've got kingdom on the brain. And they're talking about which of them is going to be the greatest. You know? Who's going to get the right hand? Who's going to get the left hand? Who's going to get to be the Secretary of State? Who's going to be the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, what what kind of power are we going to have? Uh, who's going to be the number two man? They're, they're having this con- they're, they're having it out loud. They're talking to one another about which of them is greater, really? These are the disciples, really? This is kindergarten stuff. They're acting like kindergartners. And so when they get to the house, now they're all together. They're kind of clustered in the great room. and There's probably some meal preparation going on. It's a family. There's some kids around and other people, whatever. And, and Jesus, who's possibly been up front or, I don't know, somewhere a long way, Jesus uh, says, "Fellows." What were you talking about on the way? Oh, nothing. No, no. What were were you having a conversation about while we were traveling here? And there's a child in the room and Jesus says to him, Son, come over, stand beside me. You see this child. This is who my father thinks is great. Do you see him standing here? I mean, he's just wide-eyed wonder he's He thinks I'm fantastic he He has the capacity to believe anything. He has incredible faith. His love is not complicated. It's just very simple. Very responsive. It's very innocent. You see this child? This is what my father values. And one of the other gospel writers tells us that he adds to that. And if any one of you wants to be great. oh, He he figured us out busted if any of you wants to be great you need to be like this child and and you need to be the servant of everyone you need to be humble that's the attitude that my father values above all else who's going to serve with the greatest humility Man, they're on the spot. And uh, the question hangs in the air. Okay, so how do we respond? John pipes up. It's not Peter this time. It's kind of curious to me. It's John. John says, hey, hey Lord, we, uh, we saw this fellow, and he was casting out demons in your name. And we don't think that's a good idea. And, and we want to know if you want us to stop him. We're still in kindergarten. Have have you ever had a a group of kids that are playing together? One of them does something awful, you know, and uh, you've got to bring the reprimand. And so, you know, you call a halt to the activity, you know, and and you say, uh, Jimmy, look at me, Jimmy. What did you just do? Jimmy, you know. That we've told you about that. And in the midst of this all this serious focus on Jimmy, he goes, "Whap!" and smacks one of the other kids with something. And now the other child screaming and crying, you know, and it's like, "Ah, you got to stop and take care of this other kid." What has he done? He has effectively diverted the whole thing and all your attention to this other child. And, and I think that they're still at it. This is what John is doing. The, the, the context is, which of you is great? What, to Answer me. What do you think? And John says, we saw a guy casting out demons in your name. What does that have to do with anything? It's not even in the story. I mean, it's, it's totally off base. I think John threw this in there as a fire to get every get, get the spotlight off of them. Let's go talk about somebody else that's got to be doing something wrong because he's not with us and he's out there casting out demons. I think that was a really bad example. I mean, if John had thought about this for just a few more minutes, he would have realized this guy is casting out demons in the name of Jesus and we were just there at the bottom of the mountain, and none of us could do that. We were not successful casting the demons out of that young man. But here's somebody else that's actually getting the job done. I, I would, if I had been John, I'd have been a little reticent to point that out. You know, that would not have been my first example. Because this other guy is actually getting it accomplished. You know, in that day, there were actually professional exorcists. I, I don't know if you're aware of that, but there were these uh, groups or individuals that kind of went around, and what they did was they, they cast demons out. They were Jewish exorcists. And, uh, you know, this one fellow apparently had realized, because of what he had observed, that there was power in the name of Jesus. And he had changed his tactics in his exorcism, and he was using the name of Jesus to cast out demons, and it was working for him. It was actually effective. I find all of this very fascinating, because God is honoring this guy because of the name of Jesus. Even though he apparently is not not with the disciple group or one of the followers, but But he does seem to understand the power that's in Jesus' name. And so uh, John wants to go and stop him. And despite the diversion that John tried to pull off here, the the reality is um, John really is worried about this. And so he brought it up. And I have to wonder, I mean, here's James and John, the sons of thunder. I mean, in our next story, they're they're wanting to call down fire from heaven. These guys have a violent side. Okay, they 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 can be really like thugs. Um, They're they're ready to go at the drop of a hat. And I wonder how they planned to stop him. If you know, if Jesus said, "Yeah, go go tell him to stop." Were they going to what? Take two or three more disciples and get some clubs and go out there and you know stop this guy? I mean, I don't know what they had in mind, but but Jesus says. Okay, I'm going to leave the greatness thing for just a moment. You have no idea what spirit you're of. I did not come to destroy people. I didn't come to judge people. I didn't come to put them down. I came to save. My mission on this event is to rescue people. And by the way, if someone is out there using my name, they're not going to be doing that very long before they don't develop a respect and a love for me. They're going to begin to recognize who I am. And so if they're not against us, you know, they're for us. Don't uh, We're not going to put a stop to this. Sometimes we get jealous over people who are not of our stripe who seem to be being successful uh, they seem to be accomplishing things that, that we're not accomplishing and it looks like they're uh, you know making success using the name of Jesus and, and we're struggling and jealousy is a natural tendency to rise up even in ministry in fact I, I hate to admit it but Whenever I go to pastor's conferences and stuff, I see more jealousy and envy than I see it in most places. Usually the first question, if you, if you go to a, a pastor's meeting, I maybe shouldn't be telling you all this. <laughs> if you go to a pastor's meeting, you know, and, and, you, and you meet somebody else, um, you know, you go to any other kind of business meeting and they always say, well, what do you do? Like your, your your identity, your self worth uh, is is totally uh, dependent upon what you do. You know what's your title, what's your job. You know that that's that's where your status comes from. Nobody nobody ever uh, says, um, you know, uh, what do you value most in life, or um, you know, what's your favorite hobby, or like, who are you? It's it's always what do you do. But you go to a preacher's meeting, and uh, the, so they all know what they do. They're, they're pastors. And so their question is, uh, what are you up to? Now, what they mean is, what's your attendance and how big is your offering? That's what what are you up to means. What are you up to uh, on the scale? You know, how how is your performance? And that somehow is related to your significance. And they want to they want to sort you out. Are you a contender, a serious contender, or can we just kind of ignore you? And if you ever notice, how many of you have ever seen an advertisement for a pastor's seminar where the, the headline read, we're having Reverend so-and-so who pastors a church of 35 Have you ever seen that? I have never in my life seen that. It's so-and-so who pastors a church of 3,500. And he's usually Dr. So-and-so. Okay, that's who people want to know. They don't want to know these other people. Jealousy is a problem. Envy is a problem. You know, we're always trying to make these comparisons. And it doesn't just happen in, in the church and in the family of God. It happens where you work and it happens in your environment and it happens in the places that you live. There's always the question of somebody else is getting ahead. And John is very concerned that this guy is making headway in Jesus' name and he wants to put a stop to it. And Jesus says, you know what? First of all, I've got a problem with your attitude. The second thing I've got a problem with is you need to rejoice when the, when the good news is being proclaimed. You need to rejoice. Paul said, I realize, this is Philippians chapter one, I realize that there are people who preach the gospel out of strife and envy. They even preach the gospel presuming that they can get rich by doing it. And some of them even want to make my situation worse. And I rejoice whenever the gospel is preached. Because whether it's proclaimed by people who love me or people who hate me, people who want to get rich or people who just want to serve the Lord... If the message of Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation is being proclaimed, I rejoice. Don't take that too far and think I'm giving a stamp of approval on all these yahoos out there that are not preaching the gospel. I can name you a few, but I'll refrain because this is going to be on the internet somewhere. But there are those who are very popular and very wealthy and they're not preaching the gospel. But what Jesus said is, here's a guy that's being effective, casting out demons in my name. Don't stop that. Let it go. Eventually, he's going to come around to me when he sees the power that my name has. It's going to make a difference in his life. And so when the days were approaching, verse 51, for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But, but the Samaritans did not receive him, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said... You don't know what kind of spirit you are of. I got that out of sequence, but it applies both places. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So, as we continue the narrative, Jesus leaves Capernaum and he's headed toward Jerusalem. And some of the Gospels give us the wording He set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem. In other words, He is moving on toward the cross event. He's moving toward the climax. He's, he's headed to Jerusalem to accomplish salvation. Jesus is fixed on that. He is not going to be deterred. But in order to avoid uh, the distractions and the uh, clamor that would have occurred if he had gone straight down the Jordan Valley through uh, the, the land of Israel. He goes over to the west a little bit into the region of the Samaritans and he avoids the, the, the Jewish population by going down through Samarita, Samaria and he's going to come back in to Jerusalem from the Mediterranean side. And he sends uh, some people ahead of him to apparently go into these villages where he would like to stop and, and take lodging and says, uh, make arrangements for me. And the, the the image you get is that he sent these fellows on ahead and they're going to make plans. And so when he gets to the town, you know, maybe he goes to the town square or whatever, and he says, where has lodging been uh, set up for me and my disciples? And... Um, the first place they stop they says there's no lodging here we don't want you james and john are incensed these guys again you know let's let's call down fire man they've got a lot to learn you know the good news is that at the end of john's life and by the way don't get frustrated if you think your sanctification is taking a while John John was like 90 by the time some of this stuff was sinking in. But at the end of his life, uh, John is one of the most tender, sensitive, loving, gracious, old men. (laughs) Old man you'd ever want to meet. God has changed him into the disciple of love. It's just amazing the work that has been accomplished in his life. And he has such tender affection for the churches. It's just a wonderful transformation, but not now. He's, he's still got a long way to go. But, but here's the point that I really want to make in this. Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. Yes, he's got his fix, face fixed on the work to be done there and the cross. But he's traveling through Samaria, and he offers to stay in their homes and to spend time in Samaria on the way. And they don't want him simply because he's a Jew, and he's the Jewish Messiah, and they want nothing to do with him. Here's the one who has the words of life. He could heal their sick. He could deliver them. He could have tremendous ministry among them. They could have great benefit. They could hear the gospel message and their hearts could be softened uh, toward the true worship of Jehovah. But they want no part of Him because of their prejudice. Go on, leave our town. Go where you're going. We want nothing to do with you. I wonder how many times people miss out on Jesus because they have predetermined in their minds a prejudice that rejects out of hand who he is and what he offers. They've already decided, I want nothing to do with this Jesus stuff. And as a consequence, they are missing the words of life eternal. That is incredibly sad to me. And and prejudice blinds us in that way. Rather than being willing to look honestly at what the truth is about other people. Take Jesus off the table for just a moment. Just look at other people. What do they have to offer? What, are, what, are, what is the beauty in their life? What is the richness of their culture? What is it that they can, can give and contribute to our growth and development? And because we have preconceived notions, we shut ourselves off to what could be given. Friends, there is no room in our lives for prejudice. Prejudice of any sort, in any direction. It doesn't belong. It always robs us of potential blessing. And the Samaritans really, really missed out. Now, James says, when you come to the Word of God and you look at it, it's like a mirror. It, um, it reflects to you, what, first of all, what the character of God is. And then as you look in the mirror, you see how you measure up, what's coming back at you. Do you see the character of God developed in your life, or do you see things that are out of whack? They're missing. You're, you're somehow defective in reflecting the goodness of Jesus Christ. And James says some people come and they look in the mirror and they go away and they forget what they looked like. They <laughs> they just don't remember uh, at all what they saw because they didn't allow it to make an impact. But friends, when we read these kinds of things, it should make an impact. It should cause us to think: Am I petty? Do I have wrong ambition? Am I fickle like the crowd blowing whichever way the wind blows is my next opinion? Um, Am I jealous of other people who are being successful in the areas that I think are important? Do I have prejudice in my life that's hindering me? And when you see that, the question is, what do you do about it? Um, I had the privilege this past Thursday again of going down to our district office and interviewing uh, several young candidates for ministry for accreditation. And, and there's a question that I kind of always ask them. I, I ask them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And, and, and I ask them about, you know, what do you do uh, when when God points out a problem in your life? How does the Holy Spirit factor into that? What do you do when when you see God exposing your faults, your weaknesses? How do you change those? And I want to hear them talk to me about their real understanding of of the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit in their lives. That that part of His work that makes us look like Jesus. You know, and sometimes people say, well, I I, I try harder. You know, I recognize that it's true and I'm under conviction and and I try harder to to be like that. Wrong answer. Trying harder is not going to cut it. You cannot make yourself look like Christ by trying to look like Christ. There's only one person on the planet that can look like Jesus, and that's Jesus. The purpose of the Holy Spirit, as He reveals to you where you're lacking, is so that you will yield to Him by faith and ask Him to take over and do whatever's necessary. To be able to flow through you and to live through you the character of God in these circumstances. Are you struggling with prejudice? God is the one who loves everyone equally and values them. You may not be able to escape your upbringing and and the, the things that are built into you, but... God can do that and He can transform your heart if you let Him do it and let Him take over. Um, You may struggle with jealousy and envy and pride and you and you may say, I'm gonna I'm gonna determine to be more humble. How do you do that? You know, and then you get proud of your humility as you see it increasing. You're back to square one, you know. You're, you're, but Jesus is naturally humble. And so Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. What does that mean? I died to me. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I'm alive. Just had a flashback to the um, play the other night in Iwana. I'm alive! <laughs> Should have seen Tom playing Adam as the breath of God blows upon him. Uh, Nevertheless, I'm alive. But the life that I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up on my behalf. He is the one who lives His life through me by faith. So when you look in the mirror and you see defects... Don't try to put on makeup or uh, patch him. I thought about that this morning with my uh, bleeding mole here, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, don't don't try to cover it up or patch it up or fix it up. Just come to God and say lord i'm def- I am defective, but you are beautiful. You are perfect. Live your life through me, and do whatever it takes. For me to come to that place where I'm willing to let you. I surrender. It's up to you. It's not up to me. He is the sanctifier. I'm not. You know, my only job, really, in my walk with God is to love Him. Just to love Him. And to trust Him. That's it. It's His job to make me holy. I remind him of that sometimes, very respectfully. God, I don't like what I see, but I'm your problem. So fix me. You do it. I can't. There's no point in me trying. just gets worse. What happens when you try to fix something, by the way? You end up thinking about it all the time, don't you? How does that help you? When the scripture says, set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, if all you're thinking about is the sin you have a problem with. You're more prone to failure if you focus on your sin than if you focus on Jesus and just let him worry about the sin. Am I making sense? So I'm going to stop now. (laughs) While I'm still making sense. Father, I pray this morning in Jesus' name that you would touch our hearts. We, we look at these events in the lives of the disciples and the crowds, and, and we can see their foibles. We don't often see ours. I pray that you would polish the mirror, make it clear. Show us where we have hidden envy, where we have... Concealed prejudice where we're fickle and likely to blow whichever way the wind goes. Lord, deal with our hearts. And when we see the truth, may we simply fall at your feet and say, Lord, take over and do in me what I don't have the power to do. Live through me your beautiful life. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.